Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled, What is Mog Antibody Associated Disease? My name is Gigi DeFibri, and I will be moderating this podcast with Christina Leffelar. Hi, my name is Christina Leffelar. I'm a recent Towson University graduate majoring in psychology and communications. My mom and I are launching the MOG project at the TMA to create a platform and greater understanding of MOG. So we're excited to learn more from both speakers today. Um, and just so everyone knows, the TMA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. Um, and this podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download and via iTunes. So, um, and during the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send us a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. Uh, for today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Michael Levy and Dr. Ben Greenberg. Dr. Michael Levy is an Associate Professor of Neurology and the Medical Director of General Neurology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Levy specializes in taking care of patients with neuroimmunologic diseases, including multiple sclerosis, transverse myelitis, optic neuritis, and neuromyelitis optica. In the laboratory, Dr. Levy's research focus is on the development of neural stems for regenerative therapy in these diseases. He uses rat and mouse models to test the survival, differentiation, and functional capacity of human neural stem cells to improve neurologic function in post-inflammatory conditions. The goal of his laboratory and clinical effort is to translate the basic science stem cell work to a human trial in transverse myelitis and other neuroimmunologic diseases. And Dr. Benjamin Greenberg received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Johns Hopkins University and his master's degree in molecular microbiology and immunology from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health in Baltimore, Maryland. He completed his residency in neurology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and then joined the faculty within the Division of Neuroimmunology. In January of 2009, he was recruited to the faculty at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, where he was named Deputy Director of the Multiple Sclerosis Program and Director of the New Transverse Myelitis and Neuromyelitis Optica Program. Dr. Greenberg is recognized internationally as an expert in rare autoimmune disorders of the central nervous system. His research interests are in both the diagnosis and treatment of transverse myelitis, neuromyelitis optica, encephalitis, multiple sclerosis, and infections of the central nervous system. He currently serves as the Director of Neurosciences Clinical Research Center and is a King Denius Foundation Scholarship. Welcome and thank you both for joining us today. Thanks, happy to be here. Thank you for hosting. Thank you. So um, to start, um, can you just give an overview of what you know what MOG antibody associated disease is and how does it differ from um, NMO? Dr. Levy? Well, that is a, a loaded question because it's it's only been recently recognized to be a a variant of NMO per se. And the way this came about is that when patients test negative for the aquaporin 4 antibody in NMO, we recognize that they have a similar type of disease presentation with optic neuritis and transverse myelitis that for all intents and purposes seem to be very similar to those who tested positive for aquaporin 4. Um, but when we screened for new antibodies in this special population that does not have aquaporin-4, a large number, somewhere between about 25 to 40%, tested positive specifically for this MOG antibody. So that's really where this disease came from. It, it was previously thought to be associated with ADEM, which kind of looks like NMO in some respects. There, was, there were some tests that were positive in MS patients and and other neuroimmunological diseases, but when you really look back at them, they are most um, consistent with this NMO phenotype, NMO being optic neuritis and transverse myelitis. And so now we've kind of carved out this special group of patients who test positive for the MOG antibody, and we're starting to recognize some unique features about them. So they're mostly like NMO in terms of 
predilection for optic and reticent transverse myelitis, but they're different because they seem to have uh, a different target within the nervous system. It seems like the immune system is targeting myelin or myelin protein rather than astrocytes in NMO. And, and clinically, they seem to be a little bit different because they seem to heal better after attacks, and they also seem to respond slightly differently to different preventive medications, which we can talk about. Thank you. That was a really good overview and understanding of how the differences in those. So that brings me to the next question. Um, what is the relationship between MOG and NMO spectrum disorder and ADEM? Well, we're still kind of sorting all of this out. Um, we know that a lot of ADEM kids will test positive for the MOG antibody. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to develop MOG antibody disease with relapses of optic neuritis and so on. There are some kids who have just ADEM as positive for MOG, but then never have another attack again. And then there are some kids who test positive for the MOG antibody and do have relapses in the future, and they can look a little bit like recurrent ADEM, or they can look more like NMO. And then there are some kids with ADEM who are never tested or may test negative for MOG antibody who relapse in the future, and then they test positive for the MOG antibody disease and have more of that NMO um, phenotype. So it, it's really a, a spectrum right now. We don't know why some kids develop a relapsing disease and why some kids with ADEM don't. Um, but we think that that MOG antibody is a marker um, if it persists. So if, if six to 12 months after your, your kid has ADEM, if they still test positive for the MOG antibody, that tends to be a little bit more concerning for a relapsing disease. Okay, thank you. Um, and, you know, I know we've talked kind of broadly about the relationship between NMO and uh, the MOG antibody, um, but can a patient test positive for both the NMO, you know, the aquaporin-4 um, antibody and, the, and MOG antibody, Dr. Greenberg? So that is not something we've observed. Uh, so in general, um, patients test positive for one or the other, uh, while the anti-aquaporin-4 antibody uh, has been identified in patients who have other uh, autoantibodies, uh, that and the anti-MOG have not been, been co-associated. And it, it's worth mentioning, um, I, I agree with everything Michael said in terms of uh, the diagnoses and how we separate these out. I, I think it's important, just as a background for everyone um, uh, to understand how we got to this point, because this is very confusing both for clinicians and for families. And what, just one thing to remember is for hundreds of years, all of neurologic diagnosis has been based on symptoms and phenotypes. We, we see a certain pattern of symptoms, a certain pattern of weakness, a certain pattern of tremors, a certain pattern of walking changes, and we would figure out which part of the nervous system was affected, and that's how we would diagnose a condition. With the uh, explosion in our capabilities to molecularly diagnose a patient, we are realizing that there are multiple biologies that can lead to the exact same symptoms. And so our nomenclature of ADEM, our nomenclature of neuromyelitis optica, our nomenclature of multiple sclerosis is rooted in a history of observation and not biology. And now the two are merging and we are, are forced with having to improve our language and in, improve the, the names um, and, and categories we assign to patients based on their biology, not just based on their symptoms. So while a person with an anti-aquaporin-4 antibody and a person with an anti-MOG antibody can have almost identical symptoms, they have very distinct biologic causes of those symptoms. I see. And so this is really interesting um, because my mom was tested, po she tested positive for MOG uh, back in November, but she initially had, was diagnosed with NMOSD. So that brings me to the next question. If I have, if a person has NMOSD, but they do not test positive for NMO, 
what symptoms and criteria should lead a neurologist to test a person for MOG? So I, I can comment on what we're doing here uh, in Dallas, and I'm very curious to hear uh, Dr. Levy's thoughts on this. But for anybody who has evidence of central nervous system inflammation, whether it be optic neuritis, brain-based events, or spinal cord-based events, we are screening patients for both antibodies. Um, and, and the reason for this is back uh, to the the phenotype issues I discussed, there is such an overlap between the signs, symptoms, and MRI findings between these various conditions that we think in our center the safest thing is to test for both antibodies in all patients. Now, if somebody tests positive for one, we have not been routinely testing for the other because we don't think they coexist, although an argument can be made we should be screening everyone. But at the outset, uh, we're testing everyone. And if somebody has carried the diagnosis of neuromyelitis optica, but has tested negative for the anti-aquaporin-4 antibody, we are testing all of those patients for the anti-MOG antibody. And indeed, we've been testing patients who have previously been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis uh, for both antibodies. And, and the reason for it is I, I don't trust the infallibility of our phenotypic diagnosis. I don't trust that just signs and symptoms will be accurate enough for us to know that somebody is negative for an antibody. And so while there are classic presentations of the conditions associated with these antibodies, where if somebody calls us and describes signs or symptoms, Dr. Levy or myself or others could have a better than 80% accuracy at predicting somebody would have one of these antibodies, if we heard a certain history, uh, it's still not perfect. So we're, we're testing almost everybody if uh, we haven't gotten an answer in the past. Um, Michael, how are you guys approaching this? We are taking a very similar approach. We prefer to err on the side of testing rather than to wait. Um, but I know that there are ophthalmologists, for example, in uh, at very high profile institutions who say that we are over testing and uh, that patients with optic neuritis, for example, have less than a one in 100 chance of, of being an NMO or MOC patient. And so it may not, you know, it may not be that useful to test every single patient with optic neuritis. That changes if they have a relapsing condition, if they have two optic neuritis attacks, or something like that, it's certainly worth it. But then I've encountered a lot of my MS colleagues who say, well, if their brain MRI is perfect for MS, then we're gonna treat them for MS. Why, why should we test all of these patients? We've been treating these patients for you know, a, a long time and there's no indication that we need to, to test them, especially if they're doing well. And my response to them is, we're, we're still learning about MOG, for example, and we know a lot of patients have MRIs that look like MS. And so my approach, and I think your approach, Dr. Greenberg, is maybe a little bit more on the modern side of things, where we're, um, our approach is to test uh, as many patients as we can to see the different varied phenotypes clinically that have been out there as we understand more about this antibody and about this disease. Um, but I would say that a lot of doctors in the community are still relying on their clinical acumen and clinical diagnoses, just like you talked about. And more, more often than not, we'll make a diagnosis of MS. And it's only when they do poor, when the patient does poorly on MS medications, they end up in my clinic and then we commence the workup for, for antibody screening. Okay, thank you. And that's actually a, a nice transition to the, to the next question. Um, because we've talked about the relationship between MOG and NMO, but I've talked a little less about um, MS. So does testing positive for the MOG antibody rule out a diagnosis of MS, Dr. Levy? Well, we, you know, we're sort of overlapping um, MS and MOG antibody disease in some respects, because we don't know exactly what the immunological target in MS is, we think there may be a myelin component to it. MOG is a protein on myelin. So there may be an overlap of a very um, 
legitimate overlap biologically and clinically between MS and MOG. And so I don't necessarily exclude MS, but what I say is you have a MOG antibody-associated disease, it doesn't necessarily mean that you won't respond to MS medications or have a progressive course like MS. You might because we don't know enough about MOG antibody disease. Now that's in contrast to the Aquaporin 4 antibody where we know that there's a very clinical uh, separation between Aquaporin 4 NMO and MS. We know prognostically what that means. We, we know what treatments you're gonna respond to. But with MOG, it's a little bit more vague. Right now, there may be uh, you know, more that we learn in the future where we'll be able to draw stricter lines between MS and MOG. But for now, there is a little bit of overlap in my mind. Okay, so kind of just getting a better understanding of how MOG compares to other diseases. Um, how are the symptoms of MOG antibody-associated disease different from the symptoms of other demyelinating diseases? So do MOG patients usually fare better or worse after an attack than other demyelinating diseases? So it, embedded in your question is, is actually two separate questions. Um, because on the one hand, we're talking about symptoms, and on the other, we're talking about outcomes and prognosis. And I. I I think it's important to separate the two. The symptoms are ba can be basically identical uh, to symptoms seen in multiple sclerosis or, or anti-aquaporin-4 associated disease because when inflammation affects the optic nerve, whether it's being triggered by an antibody to aquaporin-4, an antibody to MOG, or whatever the trigger is in multiple sclerosis, which we don't know, the, the symptom basically looks the same. An inflamed optic nerve is an inflamed optic nerve from the patient experience in, in the moment of an acute event. So there can be pain in the eye, blurred vision, loss of vision. And so uh, the, the challenge is recognizing that there are multiple biologies that can give the exact same symptom because the symptom is only mediated by what part of the nervous system has been affected. Now, the separate part of your question is around prognosis, recovery, outcomes, and uh, response to therapies, all of the aspects that would be related to the underlying biology. So the initial symptom is only related to what part of the nervous system is affected, regardless of biology, for the most part. The response to therapy and the outcomes is very dependent on um, uh, the cause of the event. And in general, what we're seeing in our clinic and what I think is borne out in some of the literature is when there is inflammation in the nervous system triggered by an anti-MOG antibody as compared to an aquaporin-4 antibody, the recoveries seem to be better um, than an equal amount of inflammation caused by an anti-aquaporin-4 antibody. For people who are persistently positive for the anti-MOG antibody, such that they're in a category at risk for relapses, the number of relapses over time appear to be less or more spaced out than individuals with an anti-aquaporin-4 antibody. And I'm, I'm very cautious about those conclusions because I think they are very, very preliminary. We are still trying to sort that out. But in general, uh, we we think, I think, the anti-MOG antibody uh, uh, has a better uh, prognosis uh, relative to frequency and severity of attacks uh, than somebody who's persistently positive for an aquaporin-4 antibody. Um, in terms of response to therapies, the approach to treatment of the two diseases are, at this point, uh, almost indistinguishable, very similar, uh, both in the acute setting and the long-term setting. Okay, thank you. That also actually nicely transitions to the next kind of set of questions, which are about uh, treatments for MOG. Um, so I, I know you briefly mentioned that they're similar to, to NMO, but what um, if you could go in a little bit more detail, Dr. Greenberg, about what the treatments are and what's the decision process for determining the best course of treatment uh, for someone with uh, MOG antibody-associated disease? So 
I'll, I'll separate it into the two categories, the acute setting uh, versus the preventative setting. And this is where anti-MOG does differ from aquaporin-4 mediated disease. So in the acute setting, if somebody comes in with acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, meaning brain inflammation, transverse myelitis, meaning spinal cord inflammation, or optic neuritis, meaning optic nerve inflammation, the treatment is the standard treatment we use in immune-mediated attacks of, of those areas, which is high-dose steroids and often coupled with plasmapheresis. Some centers will use IVIG, um, and most studies and guidelines probably uh, place a preference on steroids and plasma exchange uh, over IVIG, but I, we don't have good head-to-head -head data. And so the, the treatment, regardless of cause of, of antibody, is basically the same in the acute setting. After the acute setting, things diverge significantly because there are a group of patients, and, and Dr. Levy mentioned this, who will have an anti-MOG antibody present in the acute setting, but then it goes away. And six months later, a year later, they're negative for the antibody. And so far, it seems as though those patients are not at risk for the relapses that we see either in patients with an anti-aquaporin-4 antibody or in patients who are um, persistently positive for the anti-MOG antibody. So after the acute setting, what we're doing in our clinic is retesting patients six to 12 months later to see if they are persistently positive for the anti-MOG antibody. And if somebody is persistently positive for the anti-MOG antibody, then we are having a conversation with them about whether or not they should go on a preventative therapy. Now, the preventative therapies we use at least in our clinic, are somewhat identical to what's used in anti-aquaporin-4-mediated diseases. They're immunosuppressants, although there is data out of the UK to suggest that IVIG might be helpful for prevention. Uh, we have not seen that to be the case with anti-aquaporin-4-mediated disease. And so uh, if somebody's persistently positive, we are offering therapy. Now, the, the interesting part about this biologically and uh, the part that I have been unable to get a good answer for from, from folks is, to my knowledge, patients with an anti-aquaporin-4 antibody who come in with optic neuritis or any other symptom, um, outside of the setting of treatment, they don't revert to a negative status. We, we don't know of this phenomenon, or at least to the degree we see it in anti-MOG, where people have the antibody transiently and then it just goes away. They seem as though they're persistently positive, and yet there's a group of anti-MOG patients who will have the acute event, and then the antibody goes away. And so if somebody comes in with a single event and they're aquaporin-4 positive, we don't wait to retest them. We recommend going on preventative therapy at that moment. Okay. So we got a question about treatment, and it is, what evidence is there that people with MOG who have failed on disease, a disease-modifying drug are unlikely to get much benefit from staying on it. Dr. Levy? A lot of that comes from our experience in NMO, Alcaporin-4 NMO, where we've tracked patient outcomes after attacks and recognized that if a patient relapses on Celcept or Rituximab, that they're likely to relapse again on the same therapy. So that's that history comes from the aquaporin-4 seropositive patients. We don't know if that's the case for MOG. We're hesitant to find out. We are nervous with each relapse that, that the damage is being done. And so our tendency is to say, well, okay, if you have MOG antibody disease and you've relapsed on rituxan, we have other options available. Let's utilize those. Um, but if a patient said, well, this attack was so minor, I was stable for so long on whatever medication it was, I'd like to give it a second chance. I think there are some situations where it is reasonable to stay on the medication. I think our tendency is just to not take the chance. And if there are the available options, we would probably use them. Okay, thank you. Um, and then, uh, Dr. Levy, do you know if any stem cell treatments are being considered for MOG patients like they are for MS patients? 
Well, there are a lot of different types of stem cell treatments that are being considered for MS. There are some that are that uh, intend to impact the immune system, so it's another preventive therapy. I think the question you're asking is stem cell therapy as a regenerative option to try to improve neurological um, disability after attacks and damage in the central nervous system. And those that stem cell approach uses neural stem cells, either directly injected or delivered in another way, to try to regenerate or um, uh, restore function. MS um, studies like this with stem cells are not being done in the U.S. right now. There's uh, one private clinic in New York I know that are, is doing them as a sort of fee-for-service option, but there are a lot of um, trials like that going on worldwide. I, I think at my last count, there were 10 studies in MS with um, uh, stem cells, mostly in China and India and a lot of other countries. And so we're going to learn from them. Um, and there's also one going on in China for NMO. We're going to learn from that as well. There aren't, as far as I know, aren't any stem cell studies um, being done for MOG antibody disease, but I would say that most likely around the world, MOG antibody patients are being diagnosed with MS anyway. So it's certainly possible some of those patients could get mixed up in the trial for MS. Thank you. Um, so we get a lot of questions about insurance for the treatments. So the next question is, how should the doctors diagnose and code the treatment for insurance approval so that the patient could get the quickest possible approval? Now, my mom says that her and the way that they code it at Hopkins where she gets the treatment is really excellent. So uh, if you just want to kind of talk about that and what that process looks like. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm the expert at this. Um, maybe if I code it, it, there's an office here, an office staff that maybe recodes it and figures out ways to get treatments that your mom needs. I don't know exactly. I would say I've heard that if you um, prefer to use rituximab, that you code for NMO, and that if you prefer to use something like IVIG, then you would code for ADEM, where it's more likely to be used. And if you're going to use CELCEPT, then it doesn't really matter. Um, there are always MS options. I think uh, there's no diagnosis code for HOG, so if you give a diagnosis code for MS, you have access to MS medications like B-cell depleting therapies. So I think there are kind of ways around the issue for MOG antibody patients, but they take a little bit of, um, you know, office help with from people who have experience with insurance companies. Okay, and Dr. Greenberg, do you have anything to add to that? Or? Yeah, I, I think in general what, what we've been doing is, Still using the diagnosis of neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder um, because I think it's fair to use while the field figures out the best title to give this. And since the therapies that we use in neuromyelitis optica um, are pretty much synonymous with the anti-MOG syndrome, uh, we have not been running into issues with getting things covered. Okay. Um, and then we've talked a little bit about the significance of MOG um, antibody levels over time. Um, so if we could just go into a little bit more detail, we have a few questions about it that I'll try to kind of summarize um, together. So, you know, one, you know, it, is it possible that they, someone can lose the presence of the antibody in their systems with or without treatment? Um, how often should someone be tested to see whether the disease is going um, into remission? And then, you know, how long after an initial attack can you test positive for the for mock, uh, Dr. Greenberg? Well, so this gets to this phenomenon of um, being transiently positive. So what we know is that in an acute setting, people can be positive for the antibody and then it naturally disappears and or disappears because of the therapy they got in the acute setting. Either way, as long as they remain negative, to my knowledge, we are not seeing relapses uh, in those patients or to any significant degree, which is different than the individuals who six to 12 months or more after an acute event test positive 
for an antibody, those individuals seem to have a significant risk of relapse in the future. Um, now, it may be years before the relapse, but there is a significant risk of a relapse. And so what we do, the, the key data point for us is whether or not there's an anti-MOG antibody six to 12 months or more after the initial event. So if somebody comes to me and they had an event two years ago and I test them now and they're positive, that's a significant data point to us. If they were positive two years ago and now without any therapy, they're not on immunosuppression, they're now negative, then we presume it was a transient positive at the beginning. Once somebody is in the category of a persistent positivity, meaning they're positive six to 12 months or more out from their event, they have a single reliable positive test, then the decision to treat or not treat or the monitoring of a treatment is no longer dependent on the antibody test in our clinic. Because if I put somebody who's been persistently positive for the antibody on immunosuppression and they revert to a negative status, I assume that's just because of the treatment and we keep the treatment going. Likewise, we have not yet associated a change in amount of the antibody circulating with a response to um, therapy. And so repeating the test over and over again isn't changing how we're managing those patients. So we're really just looking for, for a test six to 12 months out from the acute or longer that's positive and then discussing risk of relapse and need for possible therapy. And thank you. And Dr. Levy, do you have anything to add about that as well? Yeah, there is one observation that we made when we first started testing mod antibody in our lab, and that is that when we tested patients who are physically in the hospital with the relapse, they seem to have a lot more of the antibody than when patients came into the clinic in remission doing well, and we tested them there, they seem to have lower levels on average. And we don't see that with aquaporin-4, but we seem to find that phenomenon true with MOG. And so that brought up the question, well, what does that mean? Is it true that the antibody level goes up with the attack? Does it happen after the attack starts? Does the antibody level go up first? What is, what is the implication? Can it go up without attack? And so now we're very curious about that because it's not true in, in Aquaporin 4 NMO, um, and it seems to be different in MOG. Does this indicate something that's different about this disease immunologically? It would be great if we had you know, every MOG patient out there getting an antibody level done every month, or I'm, I'm just throwing a number out there, in terms of how often we would like to see the, the antibody level and how it changes over time. And we'd love to be able to see a level right before an attack and during an attack and after an attack to really understand what those levels mean because I think it would shed light on the immunological process. So if a neurologist has a new MOG patient, um, what should they know about the disease that will help them better care for their patients? Um, I think it's probably wise to, to consult with one of our centers that man manages patients actively because the field is changing so quickly. We're just really learning, still learning a lot about the, the disease that it's worth every neurologist out there who makes this diagnosis by blood test or however else they make it to just reach out, maybe get one consultation, maybe a phone call with us, get caught up on the basics. I think if the doctor is comfortable for treating uh, MS, then they can quickly learn about the unique features of MOG and know what to look out for. And so um, I think it's, it's just worth uh, at least a phone call to one of us. It's not a referral. Okay. And Dr. Greenberg, do you have anything to add to that? No, I, I, I think Mike's right. I, I think this is um, an evolving area. I, I think we're going to be handling some of this differently a year from now. Uh, than we are now, and it's it's we we haven't mentioned one one part of the history here that's 
uh, interesting and potentially important. We we have known about the anti-MOG antibodies for 30 years. Um, so they were identified in patients with ADEM and optic neuritis and transverse myelitis 30 years ago. The, the issue was the assay that was used to identify the antibodies was very unreliable and inconsistent. We were getting different results from different labs on the same blood sample. So I'd, I'd send my blood to lab one and it would say positive and lab two would say negative and, and back and forth and back and forth. So the field didn't know what to do with the antibody. And it wasn't until um, just a couple of years ago that uh, a group in the UK uh, essentially fixed the assay um, and sorted out why we were getting inconsistent results. And now that the blood test works, all of a sudden, things are starting to make sense in terms of uh, what's happening to patients over time and how they respond to therapy. And so we, it's, it's an example of how, as the science improves and technology advances, our ability to care for patients improves and our ability to advise patients improves, but we're going to be better at this a, a year from now than we are now. And so for practitioners who are just having their first patients with these antibodies, checking in with a specialty center and then remaining in contact is probably a worthwhile thing because uh, this podcast next year might be different. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, and then kind of flipping that question to the, the patient side, um, you know, if someone has tested positive for MOG, um, what should they know about the course of their disease that will better help them be able to advocate for their own health, especially during a suspected attack? So, you know, if someone is worried that they're having a, a relapse at the time, what's what's the best way for them to avoid permanent new damage if they're suspect, you know, if they suspect that they're currently having an attack? Um, Dr. Greenberg. So it's always important uh, to be in touch with your healthcare providers if you're ever having new symptoms that you're worried might be an attack. In, in the setting of symptoms, what healthcare providers will do is try and determine whether in fact there is new inflammation or if we're dealing with what's referred to as a uh, pseudo exacerbation, whether we're having symptoms without new inflammation. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. But if a healthcare provider and, and you uh, both determine that this is indeed new inflammation, then we recommend uh, intervening with high dose steroids whether they're administered through an IV or through pill isn't as important as the dose and making sure it's a high dose. And then from there, the, the big decision is whether or not the attack based on its severity and or response to steroids uh, would require further treatment, specifically plasmapheresis. And so there is no one answer on whether or not um, uh, we should plasmapheresis. It depends on not just what symptom a person is having, it depends on how severe it is, it depends on uh, response to steroids, and it depends on what their history was. So for example, if a patient has had prior attacks such that their left eye is, is basically blind, I, and they're coming with right eye symptoms, I will do plasmapheresis sooner uh, and, and more um, uh, uh, earlier in the course without waiting than I would if the left eye was normal because we can't afford uh, damage at all to the right eye. And so it is a case-by-case -case decision, but there needs to be a discussion with healthcare providers on why or why not certain therapies are being used. Okay, so a lot of patients want to find resources online or research that will kind of help them be able to advocate for their own health and take matters into their own hands and just get a better understanding. So um, are there any research studies targeting MOG antibody-associated disease, and how do patients find out about these studies? Dr. Levy? There are no studies that I know of currently for any you know, treatment, but we're always looking for MOG patients to enroll in our biorepository so we can follow them over time and learn more about the natural history of the disease. I think as an advocacy group, the TMA has a great opportunity here to sort of be the home for MOG antibody disease, uh, um, to put stuff on the web and in print that can help patients and, um, and family members understand more about the disease, certainly with our help. 
but um, it's, it's kind of a new phenomenon right now. And, um, you know, we're always looking for help volunteers. I know there are a couple of patients of mine who've offered to help put things together uh, for other patients. And I think that's the right approach. Okay, thank you. Um, and then uh, we've gotten some questions about, uh, I mean, you know, alternative therapies like changes in diet or supplements um, or something like uh, CBD oil or medical marijuana. Um, is there any sort of um, research or information about uh, these sort of alternative therapies uh, in the context of MOG, Dr. Greenberg? Unfortunately, no. Um, the the literature around um, diet and nutritional supplements for all of these conditions is uh, completely lacking. And while we, with with one exception, uh, I, I think it is still safe to say that the data around vitamin D and autoimmunity suggests that maintaining an adequate vitamin D level reduces the risk of recurrent autoimmune attacks. Outside of that. I think the literature is is scant at best. We are um, launching, we have launched a study here looking at the microbiome of patients with these conditions, including anti-MOG, um, as a way to set the stage for future diet and supplement intervention studies to see if as you change your diet, do you change the bacteria living in your gut and in turn, does that change the course of the disease? But it's in the just initial stages of, of getting launched. Okay, okay. so in, in terms of the research, um, there was a Harvard study that kind of, there was evidence that there have been, um, that gut flora is linked with MS. So is this a possible area of study that will be explored with MOG and other demyelinating diseases? Yes, and we're not the only ones. We're doing it here in Dallas, but there are multiple groups um, looking at uh, uh, gut bacteria. The San Francisco group uh, years ago published on certain bacterial species relative to patients with anti-aquaporin-4 antibodies. Um, this is an area that is going to uh, expand significantly over these couple years as a way to try and understand what drives these various autoimmune disorders. Okay, thank you. Um, and then we've we've gotten a few a few questions in um, during during the podcast um, itself. So um, one person asked if if someone is has MOG positive optic neuritis, um, are they likely to develop transverse myelitis later, uh, Dr. Levy? It's certainly possible. What we've noticed about MOG patients is that about two-thirds of attacks are optic neuritis and the other one-third is everything else and that includes transverse myelitis. So yes, there is a, a chance of that happening. The transverse myelitis can be long just like aquaporin-4 positive NMO and it can also be short and so there's a, a, there's a little bit more evidence that MOG transverse Myelitis tends to affect the lower part of the spinal cord, which innervate things like the pelvis, bowel, bladder, sexual function, as compared to aquaporin or NMO. But I think that um, you know that there's still um, significant enough risk that a patient with MOG antibody disease who has numbness or weakness or tingling or any any symptom that can localize to the spinal cord should definitely get checked for transverse myelitis. Okay, so another question that we got in is, my 19-year-old was diagnosed with ADEM in August of 2017 and was not tested for MOG. I recently asked for this test and the doctor told me they only test it if the patient is present with NMO. She's willing to test him but thinks it's unnecessary. So what are your thoughts on this situation? Well, I think it's kind of like the situation where you have a, an MS patient or, any, or an optic neuritis patient where there's no clear indication yet of a relapse. And so, uh, you know, that, that is sort of links back to what Dr. Greenberg was saying about doctors really depending on their clinical judgment and the phenotype of the disease to make a diagnosis rather than the molecular 
the antibody and, and biochemical testing. And I, and I think there, it, there's, no, there's no right answer. I think there's just different ways of practicing. If I had an ADEM patient or an ADEM child, I'd still want to know if there was a MOG antibody, not that I would necessarily act on it, um, but if there's a persistent MOG antibody that's present and the, the you know, the, if a patient has a MOG antibody that's, uh, that's diagnosed and, and, and tested positive right at the time of ADEM and, and again later, that would indicate to me some concern. Maybe closer observation would be warranted to make sure that the patient relapses were, were right on top of it and, and we treat it. And I do have some patients who tested positive for the MOG antibody and said, I want to start treatment. I don't even want to risk having MOG antibody disease. I'd rather be treated right now, even without knowing for sure. And, and that's a conversation I'd be willing to have as well. So I think there are a lot of different ways of, of practicing and approaching this issue. And I think a lot of it just depends on what your experience is in treating ADEM and, um, and MOG and NMO. Okay, thank you. Um, and we have another question that's a very kind of specific question, but maybe we'll apply it to some of the listeners. Um, so this person's daughter was diagnosed with ADEM and um, PREES um, on May 5th. She was in the hospital 21 days, had seizures, and went blind. She's home and still on steroids and is positive for MOG. Um, once she gets off the steroids, um, mom is very worried that this is going to happen again. Um, are there any... Uh, what should be done um, to kind of prevent these future attacks? Dr. Greenberg? So we're always sorry to hear about um, kiddos who are going through severe events with this, and, and I completely understand the concern. In general, uh, in our experience for patients who have had acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, kids who've had it who are treated with steroids and are then on a taper, as the taper slowly goes down, uh, we are not seeing significant numbers of early relapses. And what we do in this setting is we focus on rehabilitation and recovery with a plan to repeat the MOG antibody test in any child who has had ADEM and had a positive antibody. We repeat it six to 12 months later to see if it's still positive. If it is not still positive. We feel as though those children are at a low risk for recurrences. If we find a child who is persistently positive, then we have a discussion of a long-term preventative therapy or not. Um, it is worth noting this is a controversial area in terms of should we put every child with a persistently positive antibody on a long-term treatment? And different practitioners have different points of view on this. I do not think the field has conclusively answered it. Okay, thank you. And our another question from someone. My son is MOG positive. He had his first optic neuritis attack in September of 2017. He is still positive for MOG 10 months after his initial diagnosis. He is not on any preventative medications. Is that something we should be looking into or should we just wait and see? Dr. Levy? That's exactly what we're, what we've been talking about. Um, these are cases that we, we don't know the answer to. Um, there's some indication out there that a, a, a persistently MOG positive patient will relapse. I think some of it depends on the age. Uh, we know that um, some kids uh, turn over their immune system, so to speak, a little bit better than older. Uh, patients. So if an older person has an ADEM event and then is persistently positive from MOG, that might be a different conversation from a kid who's, uh, who had ADEM and, and is positive from MOG for a year or two. Um, but essentially, we don't have the answer, and it's a discussion between parents and uh, the, practitioner, or the practitioners about that cost and the benefits of using preventive medication and how long we would use it for. There's some indication and that even patients who have relapsing MOG disease, who were treated for, for a significant period of time, who go into a really long-term remission, can actually lose uh, the antibody over time. And maybe that means that the whole disease turns over as well. 
we just don't know the answers to these uh, questions. They're, they're more like conversations. And at the end of it, I think um, patients, they have different wishes and, um, and may come out of the clinic, sometimes on therapy, sometimes just uh, with close observation. Okay, thank you. Um, and then is there any uh, information on the risk of developing epilepsy for MOG patients who have seizures and encephalitis? Dr. Greenberg? So we have seen uh, patients in the setting of their anti-MOG antibodies both present with seizures or have seizures as a complicating feature uh, of their demyelinating event. In general, if somebody has not had seizures or recurrent seizures, we do not, pers uh, we do not put them on seizure medications just because they have the MOG antibody. And indeed, the rates of seizures is still quite low. Uh, but it is one of the known um, events that can happen early in the course of the disease with inflammation. Um, but it, if somebody just has had an optic neuritis or a transverse myelitis and they're anti-MOG positive, uh, we, we do not see a concern with developing epilepsy. We just monitor. Okay. So is an MRI always necessary for diagnosis of relapse, Dr. Levy? It's not necessary per se. There are some clues that um, either with optic neuritis or transverse myelitis that we can bank on. For example, if a patient has never had a transverse myelitis attack, then they come in with weakness in the arms and legs. Uh, I wouldn't withhold treatment to get an MRI. I think that's a pretty obvious attack. Similarly, if a patient had optic neuritis only in the right eye with mod antibody and then has vision loss in the left eye and the opposite eye, I don't think you necessarily need an MRI to start treatment. We usually get an MRI anyway just to see what we're dealing with and maybe to follow long-term. Um, but the cases where we get MRIs are where we're not quite sure if the patient's having a relapse or a pseudo-relapse, and we want to see more objective evidence. And so that's when we usually get the MRIs. Got it. Um, and then uh, just to go into kind of more specifics about treatment, um, what's the standard time frame or schedule for treatments that someone can expect with medications like rituxan and Celsept and IVIG um, or even steroids? Um, Dr. Greenberg? And I'm, I'm sorry, in the middle, uh, I didn't hear the expected time course for response. Is that it? Uh, no, just like the the schedule of treatment. So how often does someone get a rituxan infusion or Celsept or how often does someone get IVIG treatments? So um, I think the 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 course for this is is basically the same as uh, for others. For people who are taking Celsept for prevention, it's an oral medication that we dose twice a day. Um, and uh, we target a dose in, in adults, the average is 1,000 milligrams twice a day. In children, it can be a little different. In rituximab, the, the treatment protocol is the same in anti-MOG as it would be in other conditions, um, although it's worth noting there's some variability around the country in how people dose it. In our center, we, we for uh, adult-sized children and adults, we use 1,000 milligrams every six months. And we look to make sure that it's been successful at depleting B cells and that a person remains uh, uh, B cell penic, meaning their B cells remain absent for the six month duration. For some people, we have to dose at five months instead of six because the cells start to grow back. IVIG gets trickier um, if you're using it for uh, long-term prevention. Um, if you look at other autoimmune diseases, uh, whether they be of the brain and spinal cord or of the peripheral nervous system, um, there's a lot of different regimens that are used. Most of them use either a monthly or sometimes spaced out to every eight or every 12 week dosing. Uh, but in the setting of autoimmune diseases that affect the central nervous system, most uh, groups will use a monthly dose of IVIG uh, as a preventative. Um, and that single dose can be split up over multiple days in order to avoid side effects like headache, nausea, or vomiting. And so um, that, that dosing has a lot of variability around the country. Okay, thank you. And our next question is, 
I was diagnosed with anti-mog last summer. My second cousin on my mother's side was recently diagnosed with NMO. So is there a family gene connection there, Dr. Levy? Actually, I'll let Dr. Greenberg take this one because maybe he can talk about his recent genetic finding in Alcorn 4 NMO as well. Well, so uh, we, we can approach this one together because uh, between your the genetic study of the TM side and, and the NMO side, I, I think what we're all learning um, is that there are genetic risk factors for autoimmune disease in general. And so we will see in families where somebody has one autoimmune disease uh, that there may be others, um, uh, but of different kinds. And then what we found in our study for neuromyelitis optica was for patients who had the aquaporin-4 antibody, um, there were two genes that if there were certain alterations in them, increased the risk significantly. And like most conditions where genetics are a risk for the disease, but the disease isn't caused by a genetic mutation, we find lots of patients who have the condition whose genes look totally normal. And then we find a proportion of the population that have certain changes in them that are statistically different than the general population, meaning this variant of a gene just happens to be much more common in individuals who develop the disease. And so when we see families where one person has uh, one diagnosis, whether it be multiple sclerosis or neuromyelitis optica, and then somebody else gets a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease affecting the central nervous system, our theory is that they just share a general risk for autoimmune disease, but we always, at least in our clinic, like to investigate the accuracy of the diagnoses to make sure that uh, somebody who was told they have neuromyelitis optica um, has been screened appropriately. Because we are always on the lookout uh, to see if there are families where any of these conditions with the same autoantibody run together. And to date, for aquaporin-4, there have only been a few families with multiple members uh, affected by the aquaporin-4 um, antibody. Um, to my knowledge, and, and Mike, I don't know if you know of an exception, I am not aware of a family described yet with multiple individuals having the anti-MOG antibody. I, I haven't seen one and I haven't heard of one. I don't know if you have. No, that's about accurate, Ben. I, I have not either. I'd be very interested to hear if, if it, anybody on the phone uh, listening in has uh, family members with aunt, both both people having anti-mog antibodies, we'd be very interested in studying that family. Okay, thank you. And we are almost at the end of our time. Um, so I just wanted to end with a question about uh, research and kind of hope for the, the future. Um, so how has the discovery of MOG in patients change the roadmap of research, not just for MOG, but um, being conducted for demyelinating diseases in general. Um, Dr. Levy and Dr. Greenberg as well. Well, I'll go back to what Dr. Greenberg was saying about using molecular markers to identify diseases. These are antibodies and other things that we can use to really understand what the immune system is targeting so that we can then go back and try to fix really upstream so we can go to the immune system and say, okay, why are you attacking that protein specifically? And then try to correct that problem. And that, I think, has a lot of implication for diseases where we think that there's one or two targets that we can re-educate the immune system on. This phenomenon is called tolerization. And I think that's really where the future of autoimmune neurology is going. And Dr. Greenberg, do you have anything to add? And what I would add is, I, I think Dr. Levy's right, I think as we understand the biologies, we can start to target patients' uh, biology without global immunosuppression. We, we published a paper here recently with a mechanism to clear the anti-MOG antibody from a mouse while leaving the rest of the immune system intact. And uh, so these technologies are in development, but they're only helpful if we know the actual antibody causing the disease. So in multiple sclerosis, we don't know it. But as we find patients with these very specific syndromes and very specific antibodies, we will get to a place where we can uh, prescribe uh, very selective therapies that leave 
the normal part of the immune system perfectly functioning and provide a much safer uh, treatment option to patients. All right. Well, thank you both so much for being here. Um, this podcast is recorded and will be on the TMA website in the resource library. Yes, and we, we hope to, um, you know, as, as you both mentioned, we're, we're still learning about um, this condition. So um, I'm sure we will do a podcast in the near future um, as, as we learn more. So thank you both so much. And thank you, Christina, as well. Yes, thank you. Thank you.